You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan, here on the 29th day of March, 2013. Welcome to episode 264 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Government Illusion. Now, I'm sure many of you will by now have seen or listened to the debate between Tom Wilcutts and Stefan Molyneux on the subject of Is Government Immoral? that I posted to my YouTube channel recently, which has also been posted to Stefan Molyneux's YouTube channel and the Tragedy and Hope YouTube channel. So I'm sure many of you, as I say, have probably already seen that debate. But why don't we pick up from that debate today as we tackle this question of the government illusion? And I will first address the debate itself, which, uh, again, if you haven't seen that, of course, I will link it up in the show notes for this episode at CorbettReport.com, so you can go and watch it in its entirety. And uh, don't let any of the comments you're about to hear prejudge your conclusions on that debate. I do suggest you check it out for yourself. But why don't we address some of the feedback that's come in about that debate. As I promised at the end of the debate in my role as moderator, I said I would uh, present some of the feedback that came in. And I did, of course, get emails in through the CorbettReport.com contact. And of course, there is a lively debate going on in the comments section of that video as well. So why don't we just dip in for a couple of different perspectives on the debate. First of all, I'll read from an email that I got in from Mike, who writes... I was disappointed with what I thought was going to be a debate. I think Stefan did a great, a wonderful job and actually tried to engage in an actual debate with Mr. Wilcutts. However, it doesn't seem like Mr. Wilcutts has the skills to debate someone like Stefan Molyneux, or Larkin Rose for that matter. Is there anyone more su- suitable to debate these issues? I like the Stefan Molyneux-Michael Badnerick debate, although I feel that Stefan would won that one as well. At least Michael Badnerick was more well-spoken and wasn't as evasive as Mr. Wilcutts. I wish I could think of another pro-government debater that would be more of a match, but I can't think of any. Maybe this would be a good question to pose to your listeners. So that is one end of the spectrum of some of the comments that came in. And on the other end, we have, for example, a YouTube comment that came in from 1 by 93 centimeters. I've listened to Steph's stuff before, but he's not really qualified to speak on this stuff. There's a certain level of reality that he doesn't embrace. I think he would have been better off as a psychotherapist. That said, humans organize into hierarchical structures at every level of society. It's just something we're wired to do, just like wolf packs. And uh, those are just two comments that have come in among the many, many, many. And again, you can go through the YouTube comments to see some more of those types of responses yourself and to judge their merits or lack thereof. And as and as you can imagine, they really do run the gamut, everything from Steph one hands down to Tom one hands down and everything in between. So it is uh, certainly a lively discussion. And what is interesting to me is that it seems for the majority of the people who have commented and who have sent in emails at any rate, that the winner was an absolute clear thing for them, that there was no prevarication, there was no thinking about it. It was clearly one side or the other clearly won the debate hands down, which is interesting because it shows to me that uh, even though people are coming from the exact opposite sides and have exact opposite conclusions, they're both equally certain of the, the rectitude of the arguments that are being presented on one side or the other, 
which shows that there is a vast gulf separating people. And when we see that type of vast gulf, I think we can usually conclude that there is a paradigmatic uh, cross-conversation, a cross-paradigmatic conversation going on, i.e. there are people sitting on different sides of a paradigm looking across that chasm and not being able to understand for the life of them how the other side sees that differently. And as someone who has personally now uh, taking off my cap as uh, moderator of this debate and actually commenting on the debate itself, as someone who has personally been on both sides of this type of debate, uh, broadly speaking, between the merits of uh, government, even limited government, or the merits of anarchism, I can see that there is a vast gulf. And there is, I think, one clear issue that separates those who do not believe in the authority of government and those who do. And we'll get to that in a moment, but uh, to make my own comments on the debate, first of all, regardless of which side I actually favored in the debate, I, in my opinion, I believe that Stefan won the debate by default simply because I don't believe that Tom ever provided that definitive and, 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 and encapsulating definition of what government is. So it's impossible to have a debate about is government immoral if we don't clearly define what government is. Uh, Stefan presented his definition, which is not as unusual as Tom um, said it was. In fact, it's, it's become quite common in a lot of sociological discussions of government and its role. But regardless of whether or not he has ever heard that definition, if he doesn't offer a counter definition, then I don't see how he can even engage in the debate of if government is immoral. If we don't know what government is, we can't even ask that question. Secondly, I think that the debate tended to devolve into uh, arguments from effect. Well, if we don't have government, this will happen. If we have government, this will happen. And I think fundamentally, again, that's not what the debate was supposed to be about anyway. I think the debate was supposed to be about, is government immoral? Is government immoral? So first you would have to define what government is, and then you would have to make a case for it not being immoral or being immoral. And I don't think that Tom actually did that. So I think that Stefan won the debate on those technical grounds. Personally, my sympathies also lie with Stefan, but I'd like to think that those are not uh, clouding my judgment on the, on the determination of which side won that debate. But maybe it is, and I'm sure you can make your own conclusions about that. But let's let's turn to the issues themselves, because as I say, there is this paradigm uh, that is separating the two sides. And it's interesting, again, for me, having once been in the side of, well, we need a limited government of some sort, to now being an anarchist, it is interesting for me, having seen both sides, to look at that paradigm and to, um, and to ask myself how I managed to cross over from that uh, one side to the other, because that is fundamentally what this whole debate is really about at base. And uh, it's... It's quite obvious from the comments and responses that have come in that for, uh, at any rate, even if the uh, the anarchist perspective is 100% correct, as obviously I believe it to be, even if it is, we still have a very long way to go towards uh, convincing everyone uh, out there that it is the correct way to go. And that see, we can see that not only from the, the, uh, the contrary responses that come in on the comments attacking these ideas, but... Also because, uh, believe it or not, there, although there are these people having this cross-paradigmatic conversation trying to argue about the relative merits or lack thereof of government, there are some people who don't honestly don't believe that anarchists actually exist. Well, this is one of the, the difficulties I do have with the, the more purist anarchism. Um, so I think you brought up the phrase minarchist earlier on. I, I would see, see myself more in that tradition because, you know, if you don't have any kind of governmental structure at all, how can you deal with something like 
um, you know, a corporation just dumping stuff into the river. I mean, what, do you not have to have some some kind of governmental control of that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I almost think that the anarchy is just simply a misinterpretation to make it seem like it's a completely idiotic idea. But I don't mm. know anybody who really, truly believes you shouldn't have any government. But that was, no, no, no. I, I wasn't um, thinking of it in, in that sort of I, popular I way. I was, I was thinking of I like there's a lot of people yeah. out there who think that there are groups of people who truly believe that there shouldn't have any government at all. Mm-hmm. Which no, I don't think any. I've never met anybody that believe that, you know. And yet there are people who think that those groups of people exist, and their only argument is, well, "What do you mean? That's the stupidest thing. Who's going to build the roads?" And then the and then the the conversation stops. And it just always depresses me <laughs> because we have to have a government because you have to have a social organization. It's just, you know, the, the, the argument is all about what kind of government, you know, how much government, what level of government, not whether or not we should have any government. I mean, my goodness, even a small corporation has to have a governing board. I mean, even a family has a father and a mother. Well, I'm here to inform J.J. Jones and Julian Charles of the Mind Renewed podcast that, um, well, I'll put my hand up as someone that both of those people have talked to in the past that truly does believe that there should be no government. But I don't want to press that too far. I hope that people listened to that, that clip and understood what was being said, because I think, again, this comes back to definitional issues, which is why it's absolutely pointless to debate things like this when we don't have the definitions down first. So, again, I think government and that term is being used in a slightly different sense here than it would be used in a political discussion on anarchy, as at least I understand it, and as I think most other people uh, who have studied the subject understand it. Of course, corporations have governing boards, and there are different organizations uh, that can be, and institutions even, that can be put, put together. Um, on a voluntary basis, all of which could look in every respect like government, but which would not be government, i.e. not government in the sense of the definition that, for example, Stefan Molyneux and many, many others like Max Weber and many others have provided in the past that a government is that body which has the legal monopoly to initiate force within a given geographic area. By that definition of government, uh, the corporation does not have that form of governing board. That is not government in that sense, because it doesn't have a legal monopoly on the initiation of violence. In fact, it doesn't have the right at all to initiate violence. Just like you don't have the right to initiate violence, I don't have the right to initiate violence. No one that we know as an individual has the right to initiate violence. But there are people who believe that somehow, through some magical, mystical method, everyone puts a name into a hat or they all say some magic word or whatever process that is, somehow, even though no one has the right to initiate violence on someone else to against their will, somehow we can give that authority to a group of people who then put on hats and wear badges and pretend to have that authority. Now, this is, I think, again, there are many, many different ways to approach this conversation. And I think it's important to understand that people like J.J. Jones, I'm, I'm not singling him out here, and I'm not singling out any other particular person. I'm just saying, in general, I understand where these people are coming from with their argument that they can't understand what anarchy even means in this sense, because it's such a foreign and alien idea. 
So my task today is to at least find a way of trying to introduce this idea to people that will not immediately put up their, their blockers and, and, and get their blinders and stop them from looking into this issue. Because I think it is an exceptionally important and profound and philosophically important issue that we have to get straight if we're even going to begin talking on the same page, on the same wavelength, in the same paradigm about what freedom is and how we achieve that. And, um, and I think, first of all, I mean, there are many different ways that we can approach this, some that end up being more combative and debative and argumentative than others. So, for example, we can talk about those arguments from effect, uh, like what I think the la latter half of that Wilcott's Molyneux debate was. It was talking about, well, what would a governmentless society look like? How would it protect against this or that? Well, governments can do this and that, so therefore it must be better. And, and I think there are valid arguments to be made about the arguments from effect of not having a ruling class authority that proclaims the right to the magical, mystical right to somehow initiate violence in the pursuit of its aims. Um, but I understand how that very quickly devolves into a lot of very specific scenarios and, and certain arguments that tend to be more invective-laden than actually co uh, content-laden. So why don't we back off from that? And I think the more un fundamental underlying point of the debate, as I think it was intended, for example, is government immoral? I think the question is uh, fundamentally one about morality. I think that the best case to put forward is not a, an argument from effect about what would happen in a stateless society versus what happens in a state society, stated, stateful society. But uh, the argument is one of morality, underlying morality. Um, we can, and this is something that's, that takes all of 10 seconds to sort out. I mean, for example, we can imagine a situation where uh, a man goes out and rapes a woman, and that woman ends up having carry, uh, be, being impregnated and carrying the baby to term and having the baby as a result of that rape. And that baby grows up to be a human who cures death or whatever it is, changes the face of humanity forever in a wonderful positive way that makes the rest of human history a wonderful utopian wonderland. Does that fact that that child grew up to be a great person who made some great contribution to society, does that make the, the initial rape a moral act? Does that negate the immorality of the rape that, that actually caused that, that pregnancy? Of course not. I don't think anyone would really argue that. And if they did, I think we would have to very carefully scrutinize their moral pronouncements. Of course, the rape itself is still an immoral action, no matter what results from it. So I think that the most profound argument that we can make is that if it is wrong in all ways, in all respects, to initiate violence against someone who is not initiating violence against you, i.e. not self-defense violence, but violence that is initiated to make someone conform to your will, if that is wrong, then it is always wrong, no matter what, how it is done or what shiny colored badges people are wearing who claim to have that authority. That is the most effective moral argument, I think, to be made. But there is an even more profound argument to be made, and this is one that I will not attempt to articulate myself because it has already been articulated probably much better than I ever could by people who are more eloquent on this matter. And this is the question that in response to the person who wonders that if anarchists actually even exist, we can make the argument that, in fact, when you really examine it, government authority does not exist. It is a superstition. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, I'm an anarchist. Now, most of the anarchists I know got there by deciding that the choice between having a ruling class and not having a ruling class 
it would be better to not have one. That's not how I got where I am. I got where I am by coming to the conclusion that there aren't two choices. There is no government. It's a hallucination because we imagine it to have authority that I can prove it does not have. And if we live our lives based on imagining something that isn't real, it's pretty, it's to be expected that we will do stupid, destructive things. As it happens in this case, the amount of evil and destruction and damage and suffering that comes from hallucinating authority where there is none is just enormous. It's way beyond my comprehension. It's way beyond the comprehension of most people I know, if not everybody. And so what I focus on is getting people to give up superstitions and hallucinations that mess with their own head. Um, I'm going to be sort of short here in my, my monologue rant. My favorite thing to do, which I hardly ever get to do, is do it live, walking somebody through a line of questioning if they still believe in a government, whether it's a huge government, a little government, a constitutional republic, a democracy, whatever it is. And the reason I can't usually do it is because it's not fun to be on the receiving end of it. Um, it wasn't fun when I was on the receiving end of it, doing it to myself. Even then I was uncomfortable. What it comes down to is freedom depends almost entirely on what is between your ears and what's between the ears of everybody else. What happens in Washington, D.C. does not matter in the slightest. It is absolutely irrelevant to whether we have a free society or not. Consider this. I realize that sounds weird if you haven't heard, haven't heard this sort of thing before. Consider this. What if tomorrow morning everybody in the country woke up and for some reason by selective amnesia they didn't know what the IRS was? And eventually they'd get letters that said, we're the IRS and you should give us a bunch of money. And they'd go, I don't know who you are, and they'd throw it away. That's the end of the income tax. Didn't take an election. It didn't take legislation. It took people no longer imagining an obligation to bow to a giant extortion racket. That's all. It wouldn't take a revolution. You wouldn't even have to resist. You just ignore them out of power. That, that's actually kind of the point of the little video, The Tiny Dot, that if you look at the number of extortionists and the number of their victims, it's just ridiculous. We outnumber them a gazillion to one. All of the power they have comes from their victims hallucinating legitimacy to the extortion racket. And it's true of every other law that the politicians want to spew forth. If we don't hallucinate an obligation to bow and obey, they just disappear. They have no power. Authority is always in the eye of the beholder. If we imagine them to be our master, then they are our master. If we stop imagining that, they aren't anymore. Literally, what do you think 400 people in Washington would do if everyone else said, we don't really acknowledge your right to boss us around and take our money? People say, well, what about their enforcers? There wouldn't be enforcers. They're hallucinating it too. All the people who work for the IRS, the soldiers, the cops, all the people who implement the destructive bad ideas of the crooks in Congress, they hallucinate authority where there is none. You think congressmen are going to go door to door saying, you've got to give us some money. No, they rely on their thugs to imagine authority where there is none. And then they rely on their victims to imagine it. Now, if one or two people occasionally say, you don't have the right to take my money, you don't have the right to boss me around, in come the thugs, the very well-programmed thugs who think they're righteous and noble, stomping on people who, who disobey the ruling class. 
But if everyone understands it, it just goes away. It just evaporates. Literally, you can ignore any tyrant out of existence if enough people understand the reality. So a lot of what I do is, is talk to minarchists and libertarians with a capital L and constitutionalists and try to get them to see that not only will the political process never achieve freedom, and it never has before, if you want to point out an example anywhere in history, at any point in history, where voting has led to freedom, go for it. I don't know of any. Not only is that not the solution, it is the problem. And I use the analogy of the slave who every day, you know, thinks what he's going to say to his master and he gets this eloquent, heartfelt speech of why he should be free. Every day he goes to his master and says, Master, here is why you really should free me. And he goes on for half an hour while his master isn't even paying attention. His master says, yeah, get heck to work. That goes on until the end of time unless one day the slave says, I don't need his permission to be free and then he walks away. That is what has to happen. As long as we petition and we whine for or against this or that legislation and we vote and we cry to the masters and we protest to the masters, the one message that comes through is we agree that it is up to you masters what we are allowed to do. Whatever you say after that, they don't hear and it doesn't matter. When the day comes that we don't go to them, we don't protest, we don't vote, we just turn our backs on them and ignore them, that's how you get to freedom, and that's the only way you ever get to freedom, because as long as you are begging the master for his permission to keep what you earn or run your own life or make your own choices, you're not even free inside your own head. As long as you imagine you need legal permission to be free, you will never be free, which is why most of what I focus on is getting people to understand the authority you hallucinate into government is not real. They are a gang of thugs, and that is all. Stop calling their commands laws. It gives it legitimacy. They aren't laws, they're threats. They boss us around and hurt us if we disobey. Stop calling their extortion taxation. It's not. It's just extortion. It's just as immoral as a carjacker or a guy on the street robbing little old ladies at gunpoint. When we stop hallucinating them as our rightful masters, they will stop being our rightful masters because they never were. We were taught to imagine that's what they are. When people say, do you want to abolish government? I say, no, any more than I want to abolish Santa Claus. I just want people to understand it's not real. And if you will deal with your life understanding reality, things work a lot better than if your life depends upon responding to something that isn't real. That, of course, is the incomparable Larkin Rose, previous Corbett Report guest and the author of such works as The Most Dangerous Superstition, talking about how government authority really is not so much an illusion, perhaps uh, the, the title of today's episode is something of a misnomer, but at the very least a collective delusion, very much akin to superstition. It is a superstition to believe that there is some magical process by which any group of people can somehow magically invent a right for some designated agent that they do not have themselves. 
And that is an extremely profound, very important baseline fundamental understanding that one needs to have in order to truly appreciate what the anarchist position is. And again, we can have all the debates you want about the arguments from effect or even the argument from morality. But if we can understand that the creation of rights in some body of people that has been somehow magically invested with some magical ability to do things that you and I are not allowed to do, that in and of itself is a superstition. And everything that proceeds from that superstition, it might start to physically instantiate that superstition. It might be just a delusion that we share in common, but because we all share that common delusion, it starts to instantiate itself in the actual physical world. But the difference between reality and non-reality is that reality is what remains when you, even if you stop believing in it. If we all stop believing in gravity right now, and we, we walk over the edge of a cliff, you're still going to fall down and die. And if you want to dispute me on that point, by all means, go and try it. Of course, I don't want anyone to go and die. So please don't try it. But that is the thought experiment. We can all stop believing in gravity. It doesn't mean gravity doesn't exist. But if every single person in, for example, Japan, where I am right now, woke up tomorrow and stopped believing in the authority of the government and its ability to, for example, force people to pay taxes to fund its, uh, its existence, if every single person in Japan stopped believing in it overnight, the government would cease to exist. It would not be there. Its functions would be completely eliminated. Its entire apparatus would be gone because all it is is those, that collective belief in the existence of governmental authority is what makes the government exist. So it is not real. It is not something that is truly uh, uh, there in the real world. And the, the implications of this point, which seem, I understand how this might seem like philosophical gobbledygook or, or something to some pragmatic-minded people out there, but it has very important implications. And so much of this governmental tyranny that we have experienced and that I, I assume most of the people watching my reports are fighting against as well, it has such profound implications on what that that fight is even is or how it proceeds or why it exists in the first place. So again, this is a point that requires some articulation. So I think that there's an excellent visual parable that has been told about this once again that has been put together by Larkin Rose. So I'm going to share that with you right now which is a uh, YouTube video called The Tiny Dot, which some of you out there might be familiar with. If you're not, I strongly suggest that if you're listening to the audio of this podcast that you go and watch the video of this either on its own YouTube uh, channel or of course uh, in the podcast that I'm presenting here because it is a strongly visual parable but at any rate I hope you get the sense from the audio so let's draw out some of the implications of this magical mystical superstitious belief that there is such a thing as government authority and where that leads society inevitably by its very nature once upon a time, there were a hundred million people. They had different interests, different beliefs, different occupations, but for the most part, they got along pretty well. Then one day, a gang of a few hundred people showed up. Um, need to zoom in some more to see them. I know they're there somewhere. Zoom in. There, there they are. And this gang of a few hundred said to the throng of a hundred million, from now on, you all have to give us a cut of everything you earn. This is an accurate graphical comparison between the number of American taxpayers and the number of U.S. congressmen. 
And the throng said, Gosh, do we have to give you a cut of what we earn? And the gang of a few hundred said, Yes, you have to. And the throng said, Well, okay, I guess we have to. And one little troublemaker asked, What if we don't? The gang of a few hundred didn't like this, and said, If you do not comply, we shall unleash upon you our legions of enforcers. And the throng cried, Oh no, please don't. We will comply, we will pay. This is an accurate graphical comparison between the number of American taxpayers and the total number of IRS employees. Time went by and the gang of a few hundred said, Now we want more of what you earn. And this kept happening over and over again until eventually some of the throng were paying almost half of what they earned to the gang. Whenever the gang demanded more, the throng would say, Golly, we're already having a tough time. Do we really need to give you even more? And the gang always said, Yes, you must, or we shall unleash our legion of enforcers. Now the gang of a few hundred was getting trillions of dollars every year, spending it on wars and pyramid schemes, giving away goodies to their friends, buying influence, and doing lots of other things. And some of the throngs started saying, We don't really like the war you're waging with the money we give you. Do we really have to be paying for that? And the gang said, Yes, we demand it. Don't make us send out our legion of enforcers. And some of the throngs said, You're taking our money and giving it to huge corporations and giant banks. And some people who just don't want to work. A lot of these things we don't like. And the gang said, We don't care. We will decide how to spend it. You just do as you're told, or else. And the throng said, Okay, I guess we have to. But eventually the throng got so fed up, so angry, that they took a drastic step. One day they said to the gang, We don't like what you're doing. We want a new gang. And after pouring a huge amount of time and money into the effort, they replaced the gang with a new gang. Then the throng pleaded with the new gang, Now, at long last, can we keep our own money, or at least keep more of it? And the new gang said, Sorry, but after much discussion, we've decided that you can't. You have to keep giving us what you've been giving, in fact, a little bit more than before. The throng was distraught and said, This is dreadful. But after all, what choice do we have? I mean, they say we must comply, and they have that scary legion of enforcers. We're powerless against them. We'd better just do as we're told. So they did as they were told, got poorer and poorer, and lived miserably ever after. But after all, what else could they have done? What power could this throng possibly have compared to this gang of a few hundred and their enforcers? What chance would this thing have against this thing? How could these hundred million people ever hope to successfully resist the awesome power of this tiny little dot? In case anyone missed this, let's review. Here's them. Here are their enforcers. Here's us. Them. Us. Them. Us. Does anything about this seem just a little strange to you? Are you perhaps wondering 
Why does the throng need the permission of the dot to do anything? Why do these people feel the need to ask this tiny little dot if they can keep more of what they earn? Why would they spend year after year literally begging for lower taxes from this little dot? Is this dot just really darn intimidating? Is it very persuasive in its reasoning? To be blunt, why would this throng give a rodent's backside what this tiny little dot wanted? The fact that this tiny dot has the gall to issue such demands to such a throng is pretty startling in and of itself. But what is far more amazing is that the throng obeys this minuscule little parasitic gang of control freaks. What could possibly explain this? Let's ask the dot. Uh, this is how it works. When we, the dot, take your money and spend it on things you don't like, we're representing you. In fact, though you're not allowed to actually keep your own money, you're allowed to decide which little dot will steal half of what you earn. So that really means that you're in charge and that you're agreeing to give us your money. In fact, we, the dot, are serving you when we take your money and spend it on things you don't like. And so you should thank us and treat us with great respect and honor for having robbed you on your behalf for your own good in order to serve you by doing things you don't want us to do. So there you have it. I hope that cleared everything up for you. Once again, the always excellent Larkin Rose, putting it into very simple terms. So again, if you're not familiar with Larkin or his work, I hope you will uh, come, become familiar with him. And of course, I'll put a link into his uh, website so that you can go and check out some of his other work. But again, I think that puts it in a very, very excellent, succinct manner, exactly what the root of the problem is, not the branches of the problem and not, oh, if we can only get the right guy into power, into that position of power, then we, everything will be better. But the question that that position of power even exists, if we can just break down that mental barrier to questioning that level of the, the pyramid, the pyramid scheme that's been invented, then we can actually go some way towards getting rid of the physical instantiation of this collective delusion. Now, obviously, this is a very huge subject that covers literally every aspect of our lives and existence, so we are not exactly going to be able to plumb the bottom of that barrel today in this one-hour podcast episode, but I hope that this does get some people out there in the audience who haven't considered it yet at least thinking along the lines of what are the implications of this philosophy. I'm not even asking you to believe it yet. You don't have to. Just let's think about some of the implications of what this means, and also let's refute some of the, I think, e too easy, too knee-jerk types of refutations that come along with this, because I think there are some base, basic misunderstandings of even what that term anarchy means, which is why it's such a loaded term and why I prefer to talk about voluntarism, because I think that gets more to the heart of the issue about voluntary participation rather than coercive authority, which actually doesn't exist. And so I would like to, to make the distinction here to say that People like to talk about, oh, well, without government, there would be no social security net or there would be no army to defend us from the bad guys. There would be no X, Y, Z, whatever it is that people have that problem with. Without government, we couldn't do this. 
I would just like to throw out there that there is not a single function of government, not one, not one institution that is currently uh, uh, enacted or, or brought about by government that could not exist in an anarchical society. Anarchy doesn't mean the absence of these these institutions, these ideas, the idea of some sort of social safety net or, or, or a standing army or whatever it is. It's not the absence of those institutions. It's the absence of any coercive authority to demand at the end of the barrel of a gun participation in an institution like that. So it is absolutely possible for anything that the government currently does to be completely there in an anarchical society just means you don't have to participate in it. You don't have anything to do, don't have to have anything to do with it. If you have a different idea about how that institution should be run or instituted, you can start your own and you can compete with the one that currently exists, like in a free market. Wow, imagine that, a marketplace of ideas. Um, now, this is an exceptionally important uh, point to make because, again, it means that when you have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with anyone about this subject, they are almost inevitably going to bring up that point that they think is the, the killer point. Well, for example, you might be talking to someone on the left side of the spectrum who says, you can't get rid of government because then we would not have the social safety net and you'd have people starving to death on the streets. And if you're talking to a human being in that situation, I'm willing to bet for almost everyone out there, I'm sure there might be some sociopaths out there who aren't like this, but for almost every single person that you ever meet in your life, if you're having that conversation with them, you are going to have that conversation. You're going to say, well, I personally don't want to see people starving to death on the street. I don't take any delight in that. I don't want that to happen. If I saw my neighbor starving to death on the street, you can bet I would try to do something about that. And I would imagine that my interlocutor would, since they're arguing for the social safety net, have that exact same human concern. I don't want to see people starving to death on the street. If we can get two people in a conversation, let alone more people out there, agreeing with that concept, the idea that we don't want to see that happening and that we wouldn't just stand idly by while people are starving to death in the street, if there are enough people who genuinely do care about that issue, then isn't it at least theoretically possible, uh, we don't even have to talk about specifically the instantiation, but isn't it theoretically possible, could we imagine a universe without contradiction in which all of those people who do care about that issue could voluntarily find a way to come together to make sure that those people don't starve to death on the street? Or are you, is the argument literally that without some outside authority with a gun pointed at anyone who doesn't want to participate in that system is the only way to organize an institution that would take care of the poor? Because that is ultimately at base what, is the, what the argument is ultimately about. It is the question of whether we need that outside coercive force with a gun pointed at our heads if we don't agree with what the other person is saying in order to make these things happen. And I like to believe, and I don't think it's a belief, I mean, this is actually something that we can actually see in the real world, but let's, let's put it in those terms for people. I like to believe that we can actually create any institution that we want through voluntary interaction. And, uh, and that is the ultimate underlying thing. Again, it's not an argument from effect. It's not even an argument from morality. It's an argument from what exists. And governmental authority, the supposed imagined right for someone to put a gun to my head and say, you are going to do this because I, uh, X number of people say that you should do this, is, does not exist. That right does not exist. And just because people are wearing a hat, wearing a badge, have been elected by X number of people, or it's been written down on some document by some people I never met hundreds of years ago, 
doesn't matter. It does not abridge my natural rights that accrue to me as a human being. Now, as I say, there are millions and millions and millions of points to talk about, and again, we're not going to get to them all today, but one point that I do want to explore right now is the point of if we are going to have a serious conversation about these ideas, how can we facilitate that discussion without it devolving into mere name-calling, ad hominem attacks, straw men arguments, and other such logically fallacious means of proceeding with a conversation? How can we facilitate the ability to have this conversation on an intellectual level without simply name-calling and, and devolving into the lowest common denominator? And it is a, a very important question because, again, I think that when you are talking to people face-to-face, nearly everyone has very similar ideas of what they want to see as the general outcome of society. They don't want to see their friends and family starving to death on the streets. They don't want to see murder and mayhem and uh, rape and pillaging. And uh, if there are like-minded people that you're talking with, then what is the fundamental disagreement? What is the point? All you're talking about is different ways of arriving at that end goal. And uh, one of the ways involves, well, if you don't do what I say, I'll put a gun to your head. And the other way says, well, you can do whatever you want to do as long as you're not infringing on me, and in which case my right to self-defense would kick in. So that's, uh, that's really the two sides of the issue, and I hope people can appreciate that. Again, it's the question of how can you present this to people who 99% of the things out there maybe you agree on, and maybe there's just 1% of the issues that you disagree on. So you have, we collectively have much more in common together than we do apart. And uh, it's important to understand um, for even people who are on the same side of this issue as me or people who are on the other side, that regardless of whatever particular points we agree or disagree on, we are still brothers and sisters and in this fight and that we are still basically on the same page in, in so many different respects. Um, that it isn't worth going to each other's throats and trying to slit them in order to get rid of any competition in this war of ideas. So how do we facilitate an open discussion on these issues without raising people's mental barriers. Of course, this is an exceptionally important and difficult thing to do, but of course, one of the things that needs to be done is the creation of an environment where we can have that type of open, facilitated discussion, which doesn't devolve into that type of name-calling. And sometimes it is the case that the medium is the message, and when all you have is 120 Twitter characters or 500 YouTube characters, YouTube comment characters, or whatever it is, uh, that does tend to very much limit the discussion into what ultimately devolves into name-calling, ad hominem, straw men, and simplifications. So obviously we need some sort of forum, some sort of ability to talk about these things in a more open way. And uh, we have to use those, 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 those contexts and those environments when we can to try to see if we can get people on the same page. So one example of something that I participated in recently that I think has the uh, one potential to be one of those venues that we can have these types of forums was a recent uh, roundtable discussion that we had via Google Hangouts, and I'm certainly not promoting Google, but uh, at any rate, I'm here in the media doing what I have to do to try to get this word out. So please do not sign up for Google if you are not yet done so. And uh, please consider not signing or uh, get, getting rid of your Google account if you can. 
Um, but uh, we had this discussion recently with Storm Clouds Gathering, Grounded Being, and uh, Charlie McGrath of Wide Awake News. And this was a roundtable discussion. It's part of a uh, weekly discussion that Storm Cloud Gathering is hosting. So I hope you will check out his channel. Again, I'll put the link in the show notes. And we were talking about this. Um, and for example, myself and Charlie, uh, I think, have slightly different takes on this. I don't believe that Charlie is, uh, is anarchistic. I don't think he thinks of himself in those terms. But I think we had a reasonable discussion and found that we do tend to agree on a lot of the base issues. So I think that this could be an example of the type of discussion that can facilitate this conversation and actually result in some, some forward progress on some of these issues rather than simply calling each other names and, uh, and giving up in disgust. So let's listen to a bit of that conversation. Once again, I'll put the full link in the show notes so that you can listen to it in its entirety. And, and, and the reason, and that kind of segues into a, a underlying question and I'd like to, to get everybody to, to, to give their thoughts on it and the concept of, you know, if you are going to restructure this, this system after it collapses and given there's going to be a lot of chaos and all these things that we can't predict, how do you approach constitutions, social structures? How, would, how like, what are your thoughts on the the way that you deal with people who just don't want to live under the same kinds of system who are within a geographical region that was historically or for you know a couple hundred years controlled by a single system underneath um, a, a constitution which they say has power over you even though you didn't sign it. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on the constitutions and valid contracts? Well, maybe I'll go first because that's particularly easy for me. Um, as an anarchist, I mean, basically, I, I adhere to the non-aggression principle. But other than that, um, I don't think that I have any right to say what other people should do or how they should do it. So uh, if people want to voluntarily agree to contract with me under the terms that we agree upon, awesome. If not, well, then well, we don't have a deal. And that's and that to me is, is the only uh, viable basis for, for this type of a system because everyone loves a, a system that's that per operates through force and violence when they have the gun but when the gun is pointed against them suddenly it becomes an oppressor and until people understand that it is the gun itself and the threat of the use of that gun no matter who is wielding it or how or for what purpose until people realize that is the fundamental problem I don't think we will ever be able to to get along and until people realize that it, when that gun is removed and suddenly people are able to freely interact, then it does become a point about, well, then how do I get along with other people and how can I make them want to interact with me? And it actually incentivizes that type of productive activity. So for my, for my own purpose, I would say that I'm not looking to create a system or a type of government or a type of control. I'm trying to get that gun out of the room so that people can actually start having the conversation without uh, looking to mama or papa government to fix everything for them. What, how do you deal with the rules of engagement then? I mean, when you, for instance, if you're talking about having, I mean, this, this brings us into some of those, those philosophical questions and, and, you know, grounded being, you were saying, you know, how do we get past that? But at the same time, how, how do you, how do you avoid that? I mean, for instance, if, you, if you're talking about setting up a, a financial system or monetary system and somebody breaks the rules and they start um, counterfeiting or, um, you know, say for instance, you're living in a, in a non-aggressive society and somebody starts um, initiating violence. I mean, to me, this, this brings us kind of this, is this uncomfortable question for anarchists, which is how do you deal with people who aren't operating ethically? 
And how do you how do you set up rules for society, basic guidelines like, you know, you know, you don't rape, you don't kill, and then deal with those things in a consistent manner without that being coercive. Is that, are you going back to, I, well, I, I, I want to just jump in because uh, although, you know, we, we got, we got into this a little bit last time and, and maybe fortunately, you know, we, we didn't have to get too deep into it because there were so many points of views on it. Um, and I, I'm more inclined with the philosophy of the question you just posed, which is, you know what, I, I, I love the, the notion of, you know, laissez-faire, leave me alone, do your own thing, I'll do my own thing, but I, I guess I haven't, uh, I, you know, maybe maybe I just haven't thought about it as uh, deeply as others, but, I, you know, human nature is human nature, and, and I got stopped at this point the uh, last time we were on here because I said throughout history, and, and then someone said recorded history, and I'm like, well, okay, throughout recorded history, uh, human nature has proven to be one thing, which is there's going to be people who are opportunists, and without some form of, you, you can't even say guidelines if you're not going to have some form of governance, some form of agreement that is made that, uh, that has uh, teeth at somehow. You know, we could be trading in our wampum or our tally sticks or whatever in this region, and, you know, I, I think the, the notion, again, uh, uh, to Corbett's, uh, Corbett, sorry, uh, point on multiple currencies, multiple means of exchange. If somebody pollutes it by uh, counterfeiting or whatever, who cares? If you have multiple uh, forms of currency, multiple forms of trade, that one quickly becomes known as irrelevant and you move on to the next one. It's a whole different thing, in my opinion anyway, when you're talking about rape, murder, pillage, theft, that kind of thing. You, you can't just say, who cares to that? Uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll defend myself and not worry about my neighbor. Uh, you know, to me, anything that is done outside or anything that is done in, in a collective at all to protect the society as a whole is governance of some form. Am I off base here? I, I understand what you're saying. I would say that uh, when it comes to, I mean, I think you're saying that in that case, uh, for example, if there's there's a rape or something that happens to some neighbor or someone that's not you, then you can just uh, mind your own business and, and go on with it. I, I would say that fundamentally in that system, the rights that you have are transferable to other people. So if you have the right to self-defense, you are also able to transfer that right to someone else to defend you. Um, so that that is one possible idea of what what self-defense would look like in an, in an anarchistic society where um, uh, where it is now. What we do is we somehow magically create the right to do things uh, for these government agents that normal human beings don't have. So somehow you and I don't have the right to lock each other up and, and point guns at each other and do all of this, but but people wearing badges and hats do. Um, and that yeah. right has been magically created out of thin air by some sort of social contract or whatever magic thinking people have. But I think that fundamentally, if you have the right to self-defense, you have the right to transfer that. If you have people that will take care of you in that sense, then that will happen as well. And I think that uh, that the idea of ostracism from the community should not be undervalued as as a way of looking at the how we deal with problems. But fundamentally, I mean, I want to stress that fundamentally, the argument that I'm making here is not an argument from effect. I am not saying it's going to be utopia. I'm not saying that people are not going to break rules. I'm not saying that bad 
bad things are going to happen to good people. They are. They always will. I'm not a utopianist. I do not think that will ever be resolved. But to me, this is an argument um, to, to do with the, uh, the base morality of the system involved. And the idea that I will never have to even tacitly or even sort of uh, by, by third-party consent take part in the, the killing of a million Iraqis or whatever it is, that sort of system would not be possible in a system of voluntary association. Um, I mean, that type of event could occur, but I wouldn't be forced to take part in that or to have, uh, you know, some sort of uh, implicit consent to that type of thing taking place. Would your, would your thought on, James, would your thought be, I, listen, I, I agree with you, and, and, and honestly, you, you gave uh, the best anarchist perspective uh, right there that, that, that are probably one of the best I've ever heard. Uh, uh, Stephen Mellano has been on the program a few times, and 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 you know he does as well. But if you step if you step to a little broader picture, what what do you do? And I'm not asking this to stump you. I'm asking this because I'm very curious. I agree with I, almost a common law theme. There is no law you know, that is given from one man to another or gives them rule or power over another individual. It's almost a common law. You know whatever you want to call it by nature by your creator. You know, which is the golden rule. Uh, you know, you don't do on others; you have done to yourself, and and you can do what you long as what you like, as long as it doesn't harm another person. But how does how does the anarchist perspective attack? That, whoops, maybe that's the wrong word. How does the anarchist perspective deal with? Uh, if you had a group, let's see, a community that attacked another community. Is there a need for arms? Is I mean, a, a coalition of a community in an army type of a scenario, or an army type, or a force type scenario, where you you just need to defend the common law? And if you're going to have that, is it an is it a every man uh, is responsible, uh, you know, to be ready to to serve in this way, or do you have constructed uh, military, constructive enforcement of of societal rules? I, I certainly agree with you that bastardized is government that we have it now to the point that everything is illegal and permits are required to breathe and and there's nothing you can do without having an authoritarian figure standing over you is beyond totalitarian and it, it is the state that we find ourselves in um, so I, I agree with the concept of what you're saying but my bigger questions would be what do you do to protect this society and do you have a structured governance of sort I suppose you'd have to define society because we are con we've been conditioned our entire lives to think of ourselves as a community structure that's defined by arbitrarily drawn lines on a map. I think what our consciousness, even how we would perceive our identity in a, a truly free society, would be would be quite different. So I'm not sure exactly what um, what type of community we would have to be invaded by another community. I mean, I think that that type of but I, I understand what you're saying. I, I think still the idea comes down to the right for collective self-defense. And again, if you have the, the natural law right to s defend yourself, then obviously if you have that in the collective scenario, then you would have the ability to, to agree to voluntarily create the systems of, of defense that would be needed. So it could certainly be the case that you would develop uh, uh, something akin to the military system that we have now. I mean, that could be feasibly possible if enough people agreed that, oh, we need this type of defense. But again, it would be a, a system of agreement and it would be a system that people could opt out of. 
so again, I'm not I'm not here to certainly not here to to say that I know exactly what a free society is going to look like. I certainly don't, and uh, I wouldn't trust uh, I wouldn't trust me to be the planner and ruler of the world uh, by any means. But that's well, exactly the point. And hopefully, you don't think I'm I'm calling you out on on anarchism uh, or anything like that. It's just there. These are fundamental questions that I've had. Uh, honestly, I, I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of questions that I have too. How will this work? What would it look like? What would be the best way to set this up? And that's something that I'm trying to explore through my work. And uh, yeah. something that I'm going to be looking at in the near future is the concept of anarchy and law and what that would look like. So I'm going to have some um, legal professors and think people like that on to talk about that because a lot of people have been doing work on this for decades and yeah. have, you know, done a lot of work on, on this already. And I think it's very, important for very us to start exploring this. Very intriguing, and I would be the first to sign on board if, uh, you know, I mean, toiling uh, for fiat money for a life, you know, uh, that that uh, is, you know, one paycheck to another or one bill paying to another, uh, all for the, the want of feeding a beast is beyond ridiculous to me, and it's not a future. So I, I am, you know, I think, you know, Aaron, this dialogue is open minds. Right, We're, nobody's locked in a dogma, uh, no doubt about it, and and I think this is how discussions uh, are fruitful. All right, again, I think that's a good example of a productive conversation that doesn't have to end in animosity and squabbling over terms. It can show that there is a lot of accord and that we can all be working towards the same goals, even if we have different ways of getting there. So I just want to start opening this conversation up. Of course, as I say, it's something that we're going to continue exploring here on the Corbett Report for the foreseeable future, as there's lots and lots more for all of us to learn collaboratively in this collaborative learning project that is the Corbett Report. Once again, of course, I'm always interested in your feedback at CorbettReport.com so you can send in your emails and your thoughts and also your questions as we'll be doing another questions for Corbett in the near future. But on that note, I think we're going to leave it there and rather than myself signing off today, I'm going to leave the last word once again to Larkin Rose articulating more this idea of the superstition of government authority and what it means to be truly free. So on that note, I'm going to leave you for this week. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. When people ask me, you know, well, you really think there will ever be a society without government? Absolutely 100% guaranteed for the same reason that it was inevitable that eventually we'd know the Earth isn't flat and the sun doesn't go around us, it's the other way around. The evidence will be there forever. Now, lots of nasty, horrible things might happen in the meantime. It may take years and years and years. But eventually, the bleeding obvious wins out over the complicated lie, and that will be the same with the lie called government. Um, sooner or later, everyone's going to look back on today and say, wow, they actually imagined that a group of human beings had the right to boss everybody around. They will look at our constitutional republic the same way we look at the notion of divine right of kings. Oh, some watery tart lobbed a scimitar at you, and suddenly you have the right to rule. <laughs> How we look at that is how the future will look at, at politics today. Give it up! Give it up for that road. Introducing The Last Word DVD. 
For the first time on DVD, you can own all seven episodes from the first season of The Last Word video series, including The Last Word on Terrorism. You see, to Kissinger and the other adherents of the globalist ideology, terrorism is simply a word for any act that threatens the agenda of the globalists. The last word on CCTV. But there is something more fundamentally troubling about this entire CCTV surveillance grid than mere hucksterism. The last word on utopia. The most pernicious evil always presents itself as something necessary, something transitory, a mere waypoint on the road to the land of milk and honey. In this way, the masses can be led to not only tolerate the most intolerable conditions, but actually to support those who would seek to rule over them. And the last word on independence. It is a choice that we make each and every day to live in independence or in slavery. Every day is Independence Day. The Last Word DVD. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com.